everybody. Welcome to the Singleton Noise Podcast. I'm Chris Leonard, and today we have something different for you. I was recently interviewed on the Eggs Podcast. I encourage you to go check them out. I'll drop a link in the show notes. In this interview, we discussed my career journey and a few highlights along the way. I talked about some big gigs I was fortunate to be a part of, like four presidential inaugurations and the Philadelphia Eagles Super Bowl Parade. Let's get into the interview now, and we'll see you on the next episode. Hey, everybody. This week on Eggs, we have special guest Chris Leonard. Chris has been in the live audio business for nearly 20 years. Early in his career, he toured as a monitor engineer with the Maryland Sound International, and such artists as Tears for Fears, Don Henley, Disturbed, Josh Groban, and Anthony Hamilton. Presently, Chris is the Director of Audio at IMS Technology Services, a full-scale production company which provides audio, video, and lighting solutions for special events, conferences, and conventions nationwide. Chris and his team have provided technical support for some of the largest events around, including Philadelphia Eagles Super Bowl Victory Parade in 2018, which saw more than 800,000 people in attendance, and the last four presidential inaugurations. Joining us to talk about getting a start in the audio business, what it's like to run the largest stages in the world, what the future holds for the live entertainment industry, and so much more. Please welcome to the show, Chris Leonard. How are you, Chris? Hey, man. How's it going? Doing very well. Thanks for uh, joining us. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Uh, really appreciate your time. Um, can you give us kind of a brief overview how you got into it? I saw some pictures with you and your dad back in the day uh, doing some mixing on your website. And uh, he looks he looks like it was kind of fun to grow up working with him. Can you talk <laughs> about that? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the joke I typically have is that, uh, you know, I've been gigging since I could walk or doing sound since I could walk. And uh, it's not far from from the truth. Um, you know, my dad did the whole like bar band, you know, cover band scene when he was in college. Um, and then when I came around, uh, he was doing stuff like in our local church, um, and some local bands and stuff. So every weekend I was putting gear in the back of a station wagon, uh, going to coffee houses, VFW halls, you know, bike rallies and, and doing shows. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, so it's, it's, it's been kind of in my blood and part of me ever since I was a kid. Yeah. Uh, so that's a pretty early start. When did you get like your first solid gig? Like what was your, um, I, weekly? Yeah, I mean, or, it, yeah. I, uh, yeah, you know, it's, I mean, technically through high school, I was working through my buddy's band. Um, you know, it's funny. It's like a second generation thing. So the keyboard player in the band that my dad worked with, um, his son, same age as me, we're, you know, we're like a few months apart. And so we grew up together. Uh, and then once, you know, he came around to high school, he started doing the band thing. I started doing sound for him. You know, we're going around doing gigs, um, through the different iterations of bands he had. I helped him record some of his albums. So, I mean, you know, I was technically getting paid as early as high school to do this. Um, and there was a local production company that my dad and I helped out as well in town. We would do, um, you know, some, some low level, uh, you know, Christian market scenes that would come around town. Um, you know, some like the colleges and universities or, uh, churches and stuff, um, some small festivals. Um, so it's, it's, I don't know, a year, I don't know, middle school, high school, probably first paying gig. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Did you have any um, like bar gigs or anything before you went from, you know, working with your dad to working doing inner monitors for, uh, you know, artists like Josh Groban? <laughs> um, yeah. So, I mean, 
you know, the, the high school stuff was your typical, you know, my, my buddy's band was, was small stuff, you know. Um, and then I, I went to school for sound. You know, I, I, high school didn't go so well for me. Uh, and so, I, you know, I technically dropped out of high school. Uh, I was going to be probably 21 if I continued uh, to stay in high school <laughs> before I graduated. Uh, and so, you know, I, I got out of school and I was like, what am I going to do with my life? Uh, I, I want to do the sound thing. But wasn't I wasn't really aware of what the industry held like you know you know my dad always dreamed about like oh you know go on the road and doing this thing but I, I didn't really pay attention to what that was um so it's like okay well maybe i gotta go to school for this and so i i, I went to recording school uh, just like a like a year program you know at night school type of thing but that led me to uh get my first gig at maryland sound uh, okay so maryland sound is you know one of the was one of the largest actually at one point they were they were the largest company in the in the, in the country or probably even world. And then they've kind of diminished off their, their rock and roll. That was back in like the eighties that they were kind of the heyday. Um, but certainly one of the bigger companies in the area, they're still around. They've been around since you know, late sixties. Um, so, you know, I, I, I spent my first couple months there, just you know, what we call sweep land, which is basically you go, you're sweeping the speakers, making sure they all work. You're, you're cleaning, you're cleaning cable, you're, you're humping gear, that type of thing. Um, and, and slowly progressed my way up into doing, so it wasn't like, out of high school, all of a sudden, I'm out mixing for Tears for Fears and Josh Groban. So you've always been in the live arena. You never did any studio recording or anything um, other than that little bit you did in high school with your friends. Yeah, the the the, the studio thing never really intrigued me. Um, listen to the same song a hundred times for just for the chorus, you know, punching <laughs> in like this just didn't, you know. Um, I went to recording school because I wanted kind of the fundamentals. I mean, EQ is still EQ, um, compression is still compression. So a lot of those things still translate. Um, but I certain and they had a live portion to the to the to the class. So it was definitely it was my way to to get towards doing live sound full time. Okay. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's incredible. And and it's so funny when you think about, I mean, just how far you've come too from the guy that was humping gear to this, you know, we've talked to a couple of other like uh, high profile sound engineers on this show before. And, um, and that seems to be the story, right? Is, is I guess, you know, doing your time sort of serving, you know, for the, the sound company and just humping that gear and, and soldering wires and doing all that kind of good stuff before you actually get to touch anything. Right. So uh, I think that's a, an interesting story. So can you talk about sort of maybe your first big gig, like, you know, maybe a, a moment that you came to that was sort of a high pressure moment where this is the, the, the put up or shut up kind of moment yeah sure so i mean i had done i'd done a couple of tours just as you know we'd call like the stage jammer or you know the guy who patches things on stage so i had gone on a couple of those um and you know it was fall time or whatever and we were setting up for a tour that was about to go out and i was delivering the gear to a small like symphony hall um and it was for this guy savian glover he's a he's a tap dancer um and the monitor engineer was just gonna be a, a system guy from from msi at the time and when I show up, uh, the guy was like, oh, are you, uh, are you a monitor engineer? And I was, you know, I had a quick split second decision to make there of like, you know, how do I answer this? Uh, and now I had never done monitors on tour, but I had been doing monitors some with MSI. And I was like, yes. Like, all right, cool. Well, help me set this up. Help me dial this in or whatever. And I dialed it in and get things together. And he's like, well, you, you know, do you just want to do the tour? You know, and I'm like, sure. I, I, you know, yes. He was like, just got to check with Bob. But, you know, Bob being the owner of MSI. Uh, so I called up Bob and Bob's like, well. Don't f it up, <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, so it was. It was uh, 
a little bit of fake until you make it, but not too much. Um, and uh, I mean, it's good old analog console, uh, Midas XL3, which is like an old school monitor desk. Um, and uh, and it was n- not an easy gig. I mean, so we, we said tap dancer, but he had um, we carried this deck that was like eight foot by I don't know, like 24 uh, that, that we put Barksberry pickups all the way around the deck uh, for him to tap on. And then it was called Classical Savion. So we had like a small orchestra behind him that was all open air mics. Uh, and then we had a jazz band that would play with him. And so all these open air mics, he had seven wedges all around him. He wanted his taps blaring. Um, so that mixed with the live uh, orchestra and stuff, it was um, it was honestly one of the hardest monitor gigs I've ever had. But I was able to survive and um, it, it, it afforded me the opportunity to you know say, hey, I can do monitors on tour now and and was able to progress from there. That's pretty neat. Um, Chris and uh, Pooch, who we've had on this show before, um, they're front of house engineers. And there's a big difference between a front of house and a monitor engineer. Um, our listeners don't really, you know, we're kind of a creativity podcast. We don't really focus on on audio. We kind of just go over careers and, and in the industry type thing. I don't think they know the difference between what you would do for a uh, monitor mix versus a front of house mix. Can you break that down for them and then also talk about the difficulties of doing monitors over front of house? Cause there's different things you have to pay attention to. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So monitors would be, you know, you know, front of house would be the guy who's out front mixing for the audience. That's what, you know, most of the audience hears is what that guy's mixing or, or girl. Uh, monitors is typically a person who's side stage, um, typically stage left, but it could be stage right, which is, again, I guess the audience may, may or not know that. But anyway, if you're standing on stage, <laughs> if you're standing on stage facing the audience, stage left is to your left and then stage right would be to your right. Um but, uh, you know, the, the artists all have to hear um, and that that can mean various things for different people. And for some, it's these floor speakers that are on the on the stage that so they can hear uh, and may, maybe one per person on stage, sometimes multiple per people um, or these things called in-ear monitors or IEMs, which are what they sound like, you know, instead of big cans or literally you've probably seen them if you've watched any Grammys or any other show, these these molds that are in their ears and somebody has to mix for all those. So typically the front of house engineer is only doing one mix maybe an auxiliary thing, but for the most part, he's no one mix. A monitor guy or girl, um, I mean, we're doing sometimes 6, 8, 10, 24, 30-some mixes all at the same time. Um, when you're going festival style, uh, you you have 10 different people yelling at you all at the same time for what they want, and you got to you know wrangle that. Um, it's, well, uh, and, the- and it's, it's not just, you know, like – it's not like you're hitting one knob per person. Each person right. wants like, okay, I want more of the bass. I want more of this. I want more of that. And each person has their own specific kind of mix that you have to do for them. And so it's kind of like, you know, you're, you're taming 30 different beasts while the front of house guy is taming one. And yeah. uh, it, it just completely different scenario versus a normal mix down that, that most audio engineers would have to do. Yeah, it, it's a different um, it's a different thing. There's a lot of people who, who there's a whole joke of like uh, friends don't let friends mix monitors, right? There's this whole like you know uh, uh, where I mean, look, it's you know it is a tough end of the snake um, to to handle. Um, you know, you're dealing with directly with these artists and these personalities. Whereas a front of house, who cares if the drunk guy's yelling at you to you know, hear hear the guitar solo more? Uh, you maybe got to please a girlfriend or a tour manager, but you know that's 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 pretty easy on stage. You know that artist. Doesn't 
doesn't like you, uh, you're not coming back the next night, you know, or potentially mid gig. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of psychology that goes into doing monitors. And that's actually one of the things I really liked was I liked getting into people's headspace and knowing, um, what it is that they want. You know, I just told, um, this the other day, uh, when, when I was out with Tears for Fears, um, Roland, uh, the main, main singer, he would come out each day to sound check. He'd come up to his microphone. And he would sing um, Kathy's song by Paul Simon. You know, I hear the drizzle of the rain, right? Um, and it was a moment where I'd listen to him, watch him, watch his body language. And I could tell when he sang those few lines where he was at that day, you know? And so it's that it's that getting in that mindset of, you know, knowing, anticipating what somebody wants without, without them asking. So with the current technology and being able to do digital playbacks, um, can you get pretty close with the digital playback for monitors and then kind of make fine tunes once the artist is there or does it work differently? Um, I've never, I'm not a touring guy. I've never really done monitor mixes. Uh, I, my background's as a DJ. I went to school for recording arts so I could learn how to manipulate audio. And now I'm really getting focused into live sound because it seems like it'd be just a really fun thing to do, get out of the DJ world and just kind of work with bands. Um, can you use virtual playback to work with your monitors and get them close or is it? Yeah, absolutely. You can. I mean, I, the time when I was out there, um, mind you, for those who don't know, I haven't toured in 10 years. I've been doing the corporate audio thing. You know, we can get to that. But so um, right when I left was kind of the cusp of when virtual, we call it virtual playback, was kind of coming into the scene. And for those who don't know, basically you can multi-track record every input that's on stage. And when the band's not back there, you can play it back. So you can basically, it's a way we can actually practice without the band being there. So yeah, you can absolutely do it with monitors. Um, there's certain things uh, that uh, are difficult, right? So, I mean, you know, we don't we don't just hear right where our ears are. We feel things. It's different depending on where you're standing on the stage at the time. Um, you know, someone's all the way on stage right, um, yet there's this massive guitar stack on stage left. That's going to be a completely different experience than the person who's standing all the way on stage left, right in front of that guitar stack. So, so some of those things of virtual playback aren't going to fully translate. Um, but most tours these days, people are, are on in ears, and the stage volume is as, as minimal as possible. And so when you have that, like no real amps are on stage, uh, the only really acoustic sound on stage is just the drums themselves. When you have a scenario like that, virtual sound check is basically the exact same thing. Nice. Um, minus the physical PA, the speakers in the room. That's the other big difference is, um, you know, the, the speakers in the room are going to make a difference too. So, uh, but if a front of house guy can play along at the same time, then yeah, it's about as close as you're going to get without the band being there. That's pretty awesome. Uh, yeah, it's really cool. Well, and I think that people just don't, you know, when you go see your favorite band perform or whatever, I don't think you appreciate just all these things that go on. So I think it's interesting to talk a little bit about that kind of behind the scenes stuff. Um, do you mind then let's talk a little bit about that transition out of, you know, doing live music or these types of performances to, you know, this more commercial route. Um, I mean, what brought that about and, and what was the opportunity that you pursued to move into that space? Yeah, so um, like like many people are touring, um, you know, I uh, met my, my my wife while on the road, um, you know, eventually had a baby um, and the road life is is not easy. Um, and um, it, it became a tough decision of wanting to be home more for my family. Um, and so the, you know, for those who don't know, when you're when you're touring uh, the average decent tours, you're looking at three, four five months sometimes at a time before you're home. 
you know um you know the, the, I, some of the tours i did the longest i was out was probably three four months there's other people who go out longer than that i mean some of these artists when they go out on tour i mean they're doing a year and a half two two year tours now there's gonna be some some breaks in there but i mean you're, you're gone a lot uh and that can be tough on the family life so it was um it was a tough choice to make uh leaving behind what i had started to create I, you know i wasn't in the touring industry too long and by by some people's um Tenure. I mean, I was only there for about seven years. That's not that long, relatively. Uh, but uh, I, you know, I was able to accomplish a lot in a short amount of time. Uh, and it was a, you know, it was a, it wasn't a career move. It was a life move. You know, uh, is what I kind of tell people. It wasn't like, hey, I'm going this way, and you know, uh, because of a career. It's, it's, it's. I've now been able to make a a career for myself within the corporate world. But that wasn't the goal as a as a career move. Yeah. Well, and I think that's important to point out too, because I think there are a lot of people, I mean, sure, there are guys who can be sort of lifelong sound guys, but you're right that this, you know, life on the road is is challenging. It's it's a difficult life, you know. I mean, we glamorize it in the in the sort of the media or, you know, when you hear people talking about it, it sounds sort of glamorous, but maybe it is for the guy that's, you know, taking the, you know, private jet from place to place, but for everybody else that's uh, you know, straggling along and loading gear and sound checking and doing all this stuff. I mean, it's pretty tough work. And uh, not to mention, as you said, you know, when you sort of have a, a family back home or whatever, it can be a real challenge. So, uh, so I think that's great. But I think, you know, with the commercial work, it seems that there's a little more tenure for these guys. So, you know, you had the opportunity to get out on the road, but now you really can build a career around uh, around the stuff that you like doing. Yeah, for sure. I mean, a lot of people. There's kind of you can you can be a freelancer in the corporate um, audio space, or or there's video and lighting as well. Um, and but or you can be a lot of people are full timers at some major companies um and you know so there's there's 401k there's health benefits there's you know job security there's all those things that come along with uh with you know from the corporate world that are that are nice to have for, for, you know for some people and still working on some of the same gear there's so some people who work in the corporate world who are still doing um you know you do these large uh, general sessions where you know um, you know, Don Henley's coming to play at your general session. You you could still be doing corporate work and working at these A level touring artists at times, uh, or other times, you know, it's ten doctors on a panel talking about you know uh, ketosis and 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 how that <laughs> affects epilepsy. You know what I mean? So like yeah. it, it's um, some you know I you know, I'm not gonna lie, a lot of the corporate stuff isn't very glamorous in terms of, um, but I mean you know we we do some some large shows that that can be kind of fun, and you do like award shows where you get to do a lot of flash and trash with lights and 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 loud music and stuff so it's you know um it's it's just a different way of doing doing audio but i mean there's still all the physics are still there all the same gear so so i used to uh work with a company in phoenix that uh we did a lot of corporate events similar to that um and we did high dollar proms where we'd come in and we'd set up a full nightclub in a in a school gymnasium and uh you know, 30 by 30 foot roof with moving heads. And I was the lighting guy at the time. <clears throat> and so I have a lot I'm of sorry. history. I'm sorry. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so um, I actually, I wish I would have known more about audio back in the day because had I had that passion, then I would be a lot further along. But uh, anyways, what I was getting at is some of the events that we did, we did one that was uh, at the federal courthouse. We had to get background for all of our employees to come in and bring stage and lighting in. And uh, you've had the uh, opportunity to work uh, doing the inaugurations. Um, I can only imagine what kind of security you have to go through and what kind of a, a setup and tear down an inauguration is. Can you maybe break that down for us? What, what it's like to go and set up and do that event? 
Sure. Yeah. And I just want to clarify one thing from the intro where my bio is kind of written. Um, IMS doesn't do the inauguration. That's Maryland Sound. Um, I have done. I used to be able to say the last four. Um, I missed out on this one. Uh, I was supposed to be there. Um, right Chris before was Christmas. there. Huh? Chris was there. Rabbled. Yeah, oh, he yeah, did. yeah, yeah, because yeah. Of, because of Gaga, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, I was supposed to be there. I got cut right before Christmas. Um, you know, uh, because of COVID restrictions, obviously they cut the audience size down, and so they cut out a bunch of speakers. And so up until Christmas, I thought I was going to be there. But besides that, um, it's it's an insane event. To me, there's there's not a bigger stage, if you will, uh, of an event um, with the prestige that it has, in my opinion, in this country. Right. So to be to be able to have been a part of uh, four of them is awesome. Just, you know, being a system tech um, security wise, uh, you typically do your background checks and fingerprints a couple months ahead of time. Um, and then it's a second round of fingerprints um, and fo- uh, uh, photos and stuff once you're on site for the day of. So it's like you get a construction badge for like the building. Like we start loading in. Well, the whole platform that they build the uh, inauguration on, that starts about three months before the inauguration even begins because that whole facade obviously is not normally there. Um, audio comes in about January 2nd and works every day all the way up until January. What's it? January 20th is the day of the inauguration. Um, wow. Multiple rehearsals. There's just thousands of you know cables to run, hundreds of speakers to place. Um, and, you know, no matter the weather, you're out there every day, all day, that whole time. So, um, and then so day of show, there's a, a different badge you got to get through is a different badge. If you're on the inside, which is what I was doing last time doing calm, um, you know, I got to mi- put microphone on chief justice, John Roberts and, and Clarence Thomas, um, things like that. So it's, um, it's a, it's a really fun, unique event for sure. Uh, well, I can't even imagine, um, just as regarding the setup, because not only are you providing a feed for, you know, TV, you're, you're uh, doing, I'm sure the delay on that <laughs> pavilion area is huge. So just trying to get everything dialed in has to be a complete nightmare. Yeah, we spend, I would say nightmare. I mean, we, it's all very strategic, you know, um, there are hundreds of speakers, um, both up on like just, so not even the forward facing ones that face out towards the audience, just the speakers that are facing all of the people in those grandstands. I mean, there's a couple hundred people up there. There's a distributed speaker system under the main platform. There's 125 little speakers under, you know, one every other three seats on that main platform. Wow. You know, and then like in, in like in rings around as the balconies go up, up there, there are speakers in the railings. Um, so you have to kind of time align and tune all of those. Um, it, it's just very systematic. Um, it's like anything in audio, you know, you do one thing, right? You do one channel, you do one input, you do one speaker, and then you just keep going down the line. Just keep doing that, you know, however many times it takes to do that. Um, and then the, the delay is you, you do your first speaker and then you go on to the next, you go on to the next. And so, um, I mean, it, it can be, it can seem daunting, I guess, but I mean, it's, it's the same process that you would do in a little ballroom. You just, you're just doing it a hundred more times or for over longer distances. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the Super Bowl, uh, event with 800,000 people has to be kind of similar, but different at the same time. Um, when the Seahawks won the Super Bowl, I was DJing kind of down in the area where they had the big event and, you know, a million people around. It's gotta, you know, it's gotta be crazy to try and set up and and plan for an event like that as well. Did you have one main stage and then go down this run down the street as well? Or what was the Super Bowl like? Yeah, the Super Bowl was so Super Bowl Victory Parade. Um, 
was was incredible. So we so we are the company I'm at now, IMS. We're the Eagles. Um, we're their provider. So in in their stadiums, like typically, like their um, um, their concourse levels and um, their um, uh, club levels. There we go. That's what I was looking for. Uh, they have corporate events all year round, right? So we we do events for them all year round. We do like their autism walks and and things like that. So when it came time for them, when they were you know, a week out from the Super Bowl, we got the call that says, "Hey, if if we're going, if, if we win, we have to be ready for a parade." Um, and they knew that I had done work uh, with like the inauguration and things like that, so I I had done events of this scale because being this was Eagles' first Super Bowl, they expected it to be just go insane. Um, and so we had one week to plan what would normally take months to plan. Um, it was just one stage. Um, if you're familiar with the Rocky steps, there was a stage right on the Rocky steps. Um, and if you stand on the Rocky steps and look out towards Philadelphia, um, it's about a clear mile shot to what's called, um, uh, city hall. So they, we go down for the site visit and I'm like, all right, so where do you expect people to be? So I can know where to put speakers and point them. And they're like, um, everywhere. I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm like, all right. So like I started making like these heat maps of like where I would think people would be and start designing the system. The system was over a mile long. So I had delay speakers uh, basically after I got the first oval area, um, every, about every 400 feet was this giant pole with two hangs of speakers, you know, shooting out uh, out across the different areas. Um, but the last delay tower of, of, of speakers was over a mile away. Um that was a lot of delay uh, delay time, right? So you have to what's called time align these speakers so that when you um, it, it, that way it's not like a pop 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 when someone speaks it all it all kind of moves at the same time, um, and uh, so we we had to prepare for a whole week whether they were going to win or not. So we had to be ready Monday morning to go to start loading in if they won because the parade is going to be on that Wednesday. Wow! Um, and and <laughs> so I I never cared more about a football game in my life uh, than, than watching that. I'm I'm actually a Ravens fan. I'm I'm from Maryland. Um, but since I've been in the Philly area now for the last ten years, I you know I was like okay, I can root for the Eagles on this one. Um, and so so I designed the system. I was able to mix it. Uh, you know, if you are a football fan, you know the Jason Kelsey speech was a pretty epic. Uh, you know, speech. Uh, I was heavily riding uh, the, the the gain knobs on that because he was just eating that microphone um and uh it was it was an intense um event i mean the, the people yeah 800 some million it's hard to tell how people were there but i mean it was is massive and um there's definitely nothing like it well so how does that work when you do have that much delay or that much ground to cover is it basically i guess opposite of delay so so the guy is speaking in real time and it's being transmitted you know this full mile away but you know, it's got to hit the back people at the same time he says the thing. So, like, I mean, is there a sort of a reverse delay where he's speaking and they're actually hearing it in the back first or something? Like, how does that work? Um, no, I mean, the idea is um, so if you didn't put delay, um, if you didn't put delay, it would be instantaneous. Like, as soon as he said it up front, um, you would also hear it a mile away. But then you would hear it again because you the you know air doesn't stop moving right so the speakers from the front are still pushing air down so you would you would hear it multiple times and so if you didn't delay all the speakers to the front um, and so what it is is like so if he he spoke out of the first speaker the time it takes the airwaves to move from that first speaker to the next speaker you have to put that amount of delay time in so that basically the net next speaker is picking up where the airwaves will meet it at the same time does does that does that make sense yeah um so 
technically the people in the back, yes, are hearing it later than the people in the front. However, if you didn't actually delay the speakers, um, you would you would hear multiple repeats of the same same word. Got it. Yeah, no, they, that's what I was trying to figure out is, you know, if he's speaking, I mean, is he saying something, but because of the delay so that the people in the back are hearing it at the same time, like if it was, I, I don't know, sort of going in reverse order or something. So, but they, it, your explanation is perfect. I, I get it now. Yeah, it, it's crazy to just all the moving parts in any type of system like that. Um, you know, just the well, time. And that's the thing is, I mean, I've heard, I've, you know, been a part of, you know, festivals and stuff like uh, Mike, you and I went and saw Kings of Leon up at the gorge uh, in, in Washington. And it's the same sort of thing, right? They've got a delay. They've got a, I mean, a crowd of 120,000 people or whatever it is. So they've got the, the different tiers or the different rings around the, the stage. So I, like, I understand it in principle, but I mean, a mile long, like, I mean, that's pretty bonkers. It's, it's a lot of delay. So in, you know, to speak even further, we had to do, it was called, we had to stack delay. I mean, typically your the units that you would use to, to do these delays aren't, you know, I had over three seconds of delay by the time it was at the that's end. That's insane. And they're just <laughs> not even made for that, right? That's a lot. Like yeah. when normally I mean, you're dealing milliseconds, milliseconds. Yeah. yeah. Like if I'm like in a theater or in, a, in an arena, you know, we're talking, you know, I, I never hit a second, let alone three seconds. So what we did is like, um, there was a certain point where like the first speaker for the, for the main uh, road started, like we delayed the signal for that standpoint and then restarted the signal from there, starting on that already delayed time. So you're putting delay on top of a delay and then doing delay in the amplifiers as you went down the way to kind of like stack the delay, because typically over, over three seconds, you don't normally delay that much. That's right. so, crazy. so the, but the person speaking is hearing themselves in real time via monitor or something, right? Yeah. So it doesn't yeah. feel weird. Cause I guess if you were speaking over that delay, it'd be really hard to keep your, you know, keep with it. Yeah. And, oh. and sure there's, there's reflections, right? There's, there's, there's um, major buildings everywhere. You're going to hear it, but I mean, for the most part, you're hearing um, a direct sound right next to you. Yeah, um, very cool. So that's an amazing gig. That's pretty crazy. Um, I always wonder what it'd be like to set up a system like that and have that kind of just, craziness going on uh most of my stuff is pretty small so in comparison i've done but, pretty good size well, stuff but and may, maybe this is just another technical question but i mean like are you physically running cable a mile away like i mean are you running a hard line that way or do you start dealing with wireless stuff or how, is there another way of moving audio from a to b yeah sure so the in the where we can, we would hardwire. We would use fiber basically to run the kind of each tower um, because you can run you can run fiber you know you know thousands of feet. It's not a problem. Um, as far as um, there was a certain point uh, down the what's called um, uh, Broad Street. Um, actually, it's the Parkway um, where we used um, RF uh, you know radio frequencies. We were kind of tran- you know transmitting it like a radio station, if you will, and had antennas at each tower. So you had like a, like a local generator powering a local amplifier for that speaker cluster. And also it was like an led wall there. So people could also see what was happening. So that was like a, a big transmission that was shooting down. So uh, a good bit of the delays were picked up. What we call RF or radio frequencies to, to go down, uh, down the way. Cause I, I mean, you could have done it over fiber, but the problem is you got to run that cable. You either got to string it up or you got to run on the ground. Hope it doesn't get cut. Things like that. So, yeah. um, yeah. Well, and that I think was the thing. I mean, in my head, I was envisioning the world's largest snake running from the soundboard <laughs> at the front, you know, something that runs a, you know, a mile down the road. I was just like, yeah, no, I, could, I couldn't figure it out. I was having trouble wrapping my head around it. 
I mean, but if you want to think about a different context, so Times Square New Year's Eve, which I've also done, um, I mean, they take up that whole section. That's all hardwired. They don't do any RF in there in, in terms of the speaker transmission. So, you know, they, they, they start on December 26th and they're every night and they're running fiber from like light pole to light pole to get to each tower. So, I mean, it, it could be done. It's just a matter of time and, and, and resources. That's okay. Well, and then I guess, I mean, speaking of resources, I mean, you didn't have a lot of time to plan this thing. I mean, like, I guess is, is, uh, was it uh, Maryland sound that did this one or was it the IMS? So, yeah. so this was IMS. IMS. I, you know, okay, the, so like, does IMS have all this gear just laying around in stores? <laughs> like, I mean, obviously you're going to have to set aside some gear. So you're ready. Like how does the, the technical aspect of just gathering equipment work for something like this that may or may not happen? Yeah, so it's a pretty common thing in the industry to sub rent or or partner with another company, right? So, um, you know, while you know while we're not technically set up at IMS to do events like this, um, I could partner with MSI. And so, like the other thing that MSI had were these things we call them the poles. You see them at the inauguration. You see them at Times Square New Year's Eve. They're these forty foot poles that you can hang speakers from. You know, as opposed to having to build a big scaff tower. So, um, MSI brought in fourteen of those for me. Um, you can only fit four of those a flatbed per truck. So, I mean, there was oh, wow. you know I had over. 250 what they called you know jbl vertex uh I like VTX the vertex. boxes yeah um and uh so i mean and these are big boxes right so like the boxes are um dual 15s for the low end four eight inch drivers for the for the for the mid driver i mean it, it's a big effing box right and there, <laughs> i had two you know almost 300 of those you know flying in the air for for, for this gig so yeah um, I, no, I can't it's, even it's, imagine it's all about it's all about having resources you know um uh, I'm still good friends with the guys at MSI, uh, and we trade gigs back and forth as we can. So that's just that's just part of the industry. So uh, awesome. your, your current role at IMS, uh, you oversee everything. You oversee the hiring, the the planning, the like. If you're going to go out and do a a big gig like this, you you oversee all of that. Can you talk about going from you know just being responsible for Monitor Land? to being responsible for a bunch of employees, a bunch of moving parts, making sure you have the right configuration for this and that. It's got to be two separate worlds, yet applying the same principles that you learned in monitor land into it. Yeah, so it's it's definitely a different world. When I, so when I came to IMS, we were a, you know, a much smaller production company. Um, and so when I came in, the director of audio position was more of like a department head, right? I wasn't managing people. I would just happen to be the guy who knew the most about sound at the time. Um, and so I would help, uh, either design systems. I'd help train. I'd help our production managers design shows. Um, and as the company grew, the director role grew with it, right? The, the, um, there's more employees. And so, you know, the director of operations uh, couldn't manage all of the employees. And it kind of became more siloed because we did audio, video, lighting. So we'd have a director of audio, video, and lighting. Um, and so that that I was able to grow into management, if you will. Um, and it was a lot of learning along the way, you know, taking courses, I, st- you know, you know, either reading leadership books or podcasts or things like that. And, um, you know, but, you know, the, the touring side gives you some of those skill sets of, you know, on some of the road crews, I mean, you're managing 15, 20 plus people at a time, you know, loading out a show at fast paces. So there's, there are some of those management skills that kind of come into place from the touring world that I could bring into this. Uh, so it's, it's been a, you know, it's just been, it's been a journey that I've, I kind of learned through over time. 
Yeah, I love that. So, I mean, maybe, I don't know, this might be kind of a hard draw to just pull it out of your mind, but I wonder if you could point to any specific like sort of uh, leadership practices that you did pull from from working on the road. Because I think there's actually a pretty cool metaphor there that hadn't occurred to me before, but it's this idea that, you know, how structured and rigid that production is, right? I mean, you've got to get in, out, everything has to be where it has to be. Like, I mean, it's a precision machine. And so, but I wonder, you know, you you mentioned having just kind of learned some characteristics while you were doing that. I wondered if you had some, I don't know, some fables or something you could share from uh, your experience in leadership on, at the, on, the ro- on the road and how that prepared you for, uh, for your post now. Sure. There's a couple of things. And a lot of these things, it's you... <laughs> You don't realize them until hindsight or until you start to talk about things like this in terms of what was setting you up for for this stuff. Um, you know, like, for instance, when I was just working at Maryland Sound uh, in between tours, I would work as a uh, as a local stagehand um, at the at the local arena, um, you know, sure to pick up a few bucks. But really what I was trying to do is I was trying to learn from some of the other other tours that were coming through. I was trying to see I was trying to see what it was like to be on the other side. Right. Like out now, instead of me directing the stagehands, now I'm a stagehand. I'm taking direction from another person on tour. So I would try to like psychoanalyze. OK, well, how did they get me to get this task done? How did they communicate this? What worked well? What didn't work well? And then when I go back out on tour, I can, you know, maybe, you know, not be as much of an asshole or, uh, oh, this guy. I said, okay, hey, um, if you're done your task, you all come over here and you stand here at this corner of the stage until until I come and get you, right? And so, um, you know, little things like that. So I've, and then from a monitor world, that, that psychology thing. So one of the things that I've learned through the years is I like to study people. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I didn't know that was early on, but I know now it, it's empathy. Um, it's a word that I didn't know about until a few years ago, yet it was something I was learning and engaging in early on without knowing what the word was. And to me, um, management is all about empathy. Um, some people who are, uh, uh, consider that a weakness, um, maybe like some type A personalities consider empathy a weakness. Um, I consider it the most valuable tool in terms of managing people, because if, you know, if you can't relate with them, uh, and understand where they're coming from, you're never going to be able to be on the same, uh, you know, wavelength with them. So, you know, coming up from being a tech through the years, um, now into some sort of management, I know where people are coming from. Uh, so I, I, I'm, I'm relatable in that sense. Um, so I think, you know, yeah, it's one of those paths that you, you didn't necessarily see coming, but you look back now and you can kind of see the building blocks through the years of how, how it got there. Yeah. And I mean, like this plays into stereotypes a little bit, but I mean, a lot of those road crews, I, I mean, people come from pretty diverse set of backgrounds and, and, you know, there's a, a lot of tough life stories and great life stories and all kinds of things in those, those crowds. I mean, you know, I spend a lot of time touring on and, you know, managing bands and, you know, you meet a lot of these guys that are running the stage and everything, and they come from all points and all backgrounds, and, and not all of them are pretty. So to, to be able to empathize with those people, not only just from the day-to-day work stuff, but also the life stuff, you know, be able to manage people that come from different backgrounds and things like that, I think is really critical. So I think I think that's a great point uh, with empathy. Yeah, I also like how you brought up the, um, you know, pulling from different people that you're working with, like trying to get their um, knowledge out of them so you can can learn from that. I was listening to your episode with Ken Newman and uh, he was talking about his casino gig, having people coming through and one particular sound guy would come through and make his sound system sound a hundred percent better. Whereas 
he thought he had it close, but this one guy knew about phase aligning or this or that, and he mm-hmm. didn't know that yet, but he was able to pull that knowledge out of that person and, and apply it into his, as a uh, repertoire or his, yeah. his little tools. So I yeah, like that. Well, and I think, I think, yeah. And I think that's a great metaphor just for, you know, business leadership in general, um, you know, being able to sort of lean on the people you work with, to fill in those gaps and being open to learning new ideas, you know, cause there are plenty of people who just don't give a rip. So, so um, while we are sort of talking uh, stereotypes, so it, you're now into podcasting, you're well into podcasting, um, which you know, for me, is kind of an interesting thing, just in that most sound guys aren't looking to be in front of the mic. <laughs> and so I wonder if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about just sort of the transition into podcasting, what what fueled it, why you started doing it, and uh, and where you're at today. Yeah, sure. So it's, yeah, I definitely didn't see the podcasting thing coming, that's for sure. Uh, it actually started because about six years ago, um, I, I got into this this one podcast uh, it was early on, um, you know, by a band that I, that I liked. And I, I think I back, actually, I didn't know the band at the time. Um, so the band was Emery and the, the, the oh, podcast nice. is, is, <laughs> is, 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 is bad. Is bad Christian is the name of the podcast, which, you know, they're on over 500 episodes at this point. Um, and I was early on, you know, in, into them and they had like this, like fun beatbox thing at the front of uh, the front of their uh, episodes early on. And so like, I, I started like, I would take all of their um, intros and I made like a, here's the first 10 you know intros and i put it like in the bc club was like their facebook group and i put it in there and uh, and they loved it and so like the guys reached out to me like hey we want to do more stuff like that and i'm like yeah sure uh and so i started making promo clips for them uh just because i was friends with them and or, or uh, fans of them i should say uh and they were like hey we're, we're gonna make a hundredth episode um we have this spreadsheet of all of these clips uh can you download them cut them up and put together uh, and make the hundredth episode. I was like, yeah, sure. So I made their hundredth episode, and this was all just like free because I just enjoyed doing it. Then there were some guys who were in the BC club who um, wanted to start their own podcast, and so I uh, started working with them and, and just background stuff. I wasn't you know on the mic; just I was doing editing for them, graphic design. You know, we built um, a website. We had twelve bloggers putting out two blogs a week, so I was doing like the uh, the graphic work for that. Like it, it just all like you know just fun different creative outlets to kind of get my get my hands into um and and then you know i'm listening to this signal to noise podcast happens to be an audio podcast and i reached out to the guy and i was you know michael lawrence who was the host and i was like hey you know i like this maybe you should try doing x y and z we got to talk a little bit more and uh, he's like, Hey, do you just want to be on the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm like, yeah, sure. I, I, I love talking audio. Um, and so that was, and this was in November of, um, of 19. Uh, and, and here we are, you know, beginning of 21, we're, uh, we're all coming up on our hundredth episode. Um, you know, almost 150,000 downloads at this point. Uh, it's, um, it's it's a lot of fun, you know, I mean, to just sit here. I mean, we always say we would be having these conversations with the people we're having the conversation with regardless whether people are going to listen to it or not. So the fact that people can be entertained or learn something um, on top of that is just added bonus. So I listened to one of the Signal to Noise episodes with uh, Kyle Churnside, 
And uh, he was the front of house engineer for Boy. Um, and just going through that episode, he brought up a band that I haven't heard of in forever, and it's Norma Jean. Norma and Jean. Yeah. yeah, I uh, for it probably no one probably knows who that is. But when I was working <laughs> down in Phoenix, uh, a bass player for a band that I uh, worked with called Black Box Burning was huge fans of Norma Jean, and I haven't heard that since then since you know it's probably 15 years ago and it's just really cool to to hear those kind of stories and hear you know how you know the the church shows and the fights in the parking lot and all the crazy stuff that you never really hear about unless you're there and you're part of and uh that's one thing that you signal to noise podcast and uh how we got loud you break down some stories of some really early tech and how things started and the, the people that the the pioneers in the industry um I, I really enjoy your your how we got loud series because it's it's very fascinating to me about you know, hearing how a guy had to create an insert to be able to pan his channel left and right. You know, it's like stuff like that. You, you know, struggle right. is real back in the day. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, the, well, yeah, the, maybe 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 that would be a good place to uh, to talk a little bit about your new project, how we got loud. You're the the guy who likes podcasting so much, you did it twice, and so <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, let's talk about your new thing. Yeah, how we got loud. So it's I started with the concept about a year ago. Um, you know, on Signal to Noise, we talk to people who are front of house engineers, monitor engineers, broadcast, theater. It's all over the board. You know, and some of the, the people we talk to are, you know, um, like legends in the industry. And it's like, oh, man, it would be kind of cool to kind of do a series on, you know, some history of live sound stuff. And it just didn't, you know, thought about it. This didn't really fit the model of what we were doing or didn't have the capacity to do it in, in what we were doing. And I was like, I'm going to, I'll maybe start my own thing. And, I came up with the, the the logo. Michael of Singleton Noise came up with the name, How We Got Loud. But I, I came up with the logo and and the concept, and I just sat on it. Uh, like I designed the logo of January last year. Uh, I didn't launch my first episode until you know November of of, of last year. Um, you know, obviously COVID and stuff happened, and and was very busy um, with changes at work. And um, and I but I started to think about it more. It's like, hey, th- this should be more than just. This is not just a podcast. Like, there's more to this. Um, when it, when it comes to the history of live sound, there are um, there's a lot of information out there, but it's like in nooks and crannies on the web, or in books, or in people's heads. There's a lot of people's stories that aren't captured. Um, you know, two people know about two people typically. They know about this guy Bill Hanley who did um, Woodstock, right? They call him like the Godfather of Festival Sound, um, which you know he wasn't the first, but I mean he was he was early on in, in our and helped kind of pioneer this industry. And then people think of the Grateful Dead with a wall of sound. Right. But those, in my opinion, are two minor stories compared to the broad scope of we're talking 50, 60 years worth of of of, of history. Um, and so I was like, I- I'm going to make this bigger than just a podcast. So the podcast is really a means by which I'm interviewing people and people are going along with my journey of learning the history of live sound. Um, and I hope that manifests into something larger. I don't know what that looks like yet. Um, I'm working on a whole backend database system where I'm cataloging every you know console that was ever made, every speaker that was ever made, the year it was released, um, every sound company, who the owner was, who it was sold to. You know, I'm, I'm cataloging all that stuff as I learn this stuff, and I plan on getting this content together at some point. Uh, but it's you know to capture all this, it's it's going to take a lifetime. So I'm, I've literally been saying I'm, I'm dedicating the rest of my life to making the ultimate history of live sound. So it, it's 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 going to take that long. I mean, that guy Bill Hanley I mentioned, 
you know, who did who did Woodstock, there's a guy who spent the last 10 years just on Bill Hanley. He just released a book called Last Seat in the House. Wow. And he spent 10 years on one guy. Uh, uh, so, like, I could zero in on some of these guys and spend uh, the rest of my life on them. I'm going to try to go a little more broad stroke on the industry. And then when I can kind of narrow in on certain areas, um, you know, we're in a real, relatively young industry. You know, some of these guys are, you know, they're in their 70s or 80s, but they're still around. Whereas like the guys who made the car or the guys who uh, did other things, they're just not around anymore. So uh, time is of the essence to kind of get their story and um, their perspective on the industry. And so I'm I'm feverishly, uh, along with everything else I got going on, uh, trying to, to to work on that. Well, well that's just- great. I think anytime that a project has that kind of mission behind it, you know, it's uh it's a great thing. And, and yeah, I mean, God, I, I'm like, what's going through my head right now as we're talking is, you know, documentaries and and books and, and directories and guides and all these things, you know, and, uh, and I think it's pretty important. You know, I think live audio is one of these things that just we sort of take for granted because it's kind of all around us, you know, whether it's something going on in the park or it's a concert we've been to or whatever. And you go to see 21 pilots and you're blown away by the stage and all this stuff, but like, you just kind of don't realize like, what goes into all that, right? It just is sort of a given that it exists. And so there's sort of the subculture that I think is really important to explore. And uh, it's awesome that you're doing it. Well, and if you think about it too, audio really, I mean, it's like you said, it's in its infancy. It, it probably the forties and fifties is, is probably the earliest PA setup kind of out there. And then from there, technology just kind of came along and came along. You know, you hear about like the early tape delays or the plate reverbs or using an actual room for a delay and just the, the stuff that they used to have to do uh, to re- record the Beatles. I mean, like just the, the tech right. is so fascinating and interesting. You can go down some, some dark, rabbit holes trying to (laughs) and i honestly think it's one of the coolest things about yeah i think it's one of the coolest things about uh live audio especially and i i don't think a lot of people think about it this way but if you think about it almost like an art form in that you know from those early days i mean basically it's a it's an industry that's been pushed as if you're you know pushing snow like you're you're basically solving problems as you run into them yeah. you know and now we have some pretty slick software and we have some pretty slick uh, you know technology and stuff like that but i mean but you got there through you know 50 years 60 years 70 years of pushing snow uphill and solving each problem as you hit it and uh, and so i think it's important that you are interviewing or or thinking about the legacy of some of these, you know, more famous sound guys and the things that they did that made them innovative. Because I think that really that's maybe the word for the industry is innovation, right? I mean, it's, it's always innovative. Yeah. I mean, you got to remember like when, when uh, the industry started, like you said, fifties, sixties, you know, the gear didn't exist for this stuff. So a lot of the original tech was they were literally taking stuff out of theater, right? There's these um, Altec voice of the theater speakers. They're the speakers that are normally behind the movie screens and they're doing the rock and roll with them. And obviously they were okay for a little bit, but like, you know, the, the mixers that we use consoles, you couldn't go to the store and buy this stuff. So companies for, for decades, literally were making their own consoles, making their own speakers, um, all, all of that stuff. It wasn't, it wasn't stuff you could buy on the shelf. It wasn't the industry that it is now. And that, to me, yeah, like you said, that, that innovation, um, you know, and that's one of the things that I've been trying to uh, study with this is like the whole like you know chicken egg cart horse type of thing of like what came first, right? So part of this has to do with how the history of music progressed. You know, like a, a common example would be like just think of like the modern day EDM, mm-hmm. right? Um, 
that music was developed before there was a way to actually translate it live right and so like all these massive subwoofers and these massive setups you know they came along because of that music or you know rock and roll if you will was getting louder through the years um or aggressive if you will which translated into louder wasn't louder to begin with right so they had to develop the means well how do we get this louder or how many speakers do we really have to add to get to the back you know more how do we not blow out these speakers every show right how do we build something that's durable enough to to handle this kind of beating and yeah it's it's just incredible well one thing that i like that you do on your linkedin is you share the old photos of the the rigs and i mean i i love just scrolling through there and seeing this picture from 1960 of you know the first flown speaker or you know weird stuff like that i just think i love what you're doing (laughs) Uh, yeah i'm doing my best yeah if you if you follow on facebook instagram whatever uh how we got loud you know i'm trying to like you know either pictures that i come across or stuff that people send them send to me um yeah pictures worth a thousand words right i mean there's there's so much uh so much you can learn from what that looks like. Well, and I think too, what I'm like, what I really like about your approach is I think for so many people, young people, especially, but for so many people, we're always looking for what's next or what's the next thing. And I don't think we're paying enough attention to those that came before us and learning all the lessons that were there. And so I think it's really important, you know, in such a high tech, you know, technological field where you can, you know, bounce a signal a mile away and hear it in more or less real time, uh, you know, to go back and think about those guys and how, how did they actually hang that speaker and why did they decide that, the speaker was the way to go and why you know just say I me mean, whatever it is but i you know there's certainly a million stories but uh but i think it's so interesting that give you know regardless of how technologically advanced you are that you're going back and you're looking at the ways that it was done and you're trying to glean whatever you can glean from those people and so i, I think that that's a an interesting way of looking at life that i'm not sure everybody is doing i think the other thing um aside from innovation actually the word that sticks out most to me is passion yeah. Right. Like, so, you know, when I describe why it is I do what I do is because I have had and have a passion for doing sound. I want nothing to do but sound for the rest of my life in some capacity. And most of these people, that's exactly it. I mean, they didn't drag themselves through these years with these bands and night after the night going on tour and innovating all these things because they were chasing money. Right. Uh, they were chasing their passion. Um, and so resonating with that passion with these people, I mean, that's why I really try to pull out of people. It's like, well, what drove you to do this? And whether you were a failing musician uh, or you got <laughs> drugged into it or whatever, at a certain point, you know, the, the staying power was passion. It certainly wasn't money. I mean, yes, you can make a decent living in this industry. But uh, if you're here to, you know, if you're here to make money, you, you're uh, solely you're doing the wrong thing. There's a there's a joke that kind of goes around actually um, by uh this old sound company. It's like, well, you know, how do you make a million dollars with a sound company? You start out with three, right? Because <laughs> uh, the the investment it takes. Um, I was going to say, when, sell your inventory. <laughs> the the investment <laughs> it takes to into these speakers, like when when uh, when these guys would go on tour, the next biggest act to come around. You know, I've been talking to some of the guys at GBL, and you know, these people are dumping forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars worth of speakers at the start of a tour. And they're not going to make that on that tour, right? You know, it takes multiple tours and stuff to to make that money back. The the economic side of it um, is another thing I'm exploring because, yeah, if you looked at it on on paper, it's like this doesn't add up, you know. Yeah, I've I've been down that road. I can only imagine. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, um, Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I can only imagine when you look, especially at what stage productions are today. 
I mean, you know, I used the example earlier of 21 pilots. We went and saw them not well two years ago, I guess now with our boys. And I mean, their stage, I mean, they have crap hanging from the ceiling. They have multiple two, three stages. They have, you know, lifts and cars on fire and all this stuff. It's like, I mean, I couldn't even imagine what it costs just to run that show for one day, let alone a whole tour, let alone buying any gear, let alone, I mean, it's like, it's pretty incredible. I can't imagine. Well, let me, for- let me, give, you, let me give you an example. The console that most tours are working with um, start typically in the $100,000 range just for the console. Yeah, it's... So, well, and that's crazy, right? I mean, I guess you do have to be a, a 21 pilots to make any money on these things because it's going to cost you a million dollars a day to do your show. And, it, you know, you've got to make five million a day in ticket sales. Well, the 21 pilots isn't buying the speakers to take on the road. Right. No, of course. They're, but they're, even if they're just renting that gear, it's still yeah incredibly expensive, I'm sure. Well, and I, I kind of went down the, the road of trying to do the corporate gigs and on and everything on my own. I bought 15 sticks of Tomcat Trust with corner blocks and base plates and uh, started buying a bunch of moving heads and and trying to get into the this world. And right when it right when I got to the point where I was like, oh, yeah, it's going to be great. COVID hit. And oh, so <laughs> all of my gear, I, I bought all this truss, all this lighting stuff, and it's just been sitting in, in storage for the last year and a half. Um, so it's kind of, I'm itching to, to put it to use and actually make some money with it. But can you talk to us a little bit about how COVID maybe affected IMS and, and their industry and, and how they kind of pivoted and shifted to accommodate for that? Yeah, for sure. It's, uh, it's been, it's been interesting. Um, you know, fortunately being in the corporate world, uh, well, you know, first off, yeah, I mean, for those who don't know, I mean, there are thousands of people who are still to this day without a job. Yep. Right. If, if you were anywhere remotely, <laughs> um, involved in entertainment, um, hospitality, uh, whatever, I, I mean, you, you haven't worked in over a year now, uh, or a year. And, um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's devastating. So, um, when things first shut down, no one knew what was going to happen. Everybody's was like, Oh yeah, you know, I think by fall live events will come back or blah, blah, blah. Um, but in the meantime, we had to, you know, generate revenue. And so, you know, the, the buzzwords of pivot, uh, was, <laughs> um, you know, we had to do, you know, virtual meetings, what we do now is virtual meetings, uh, which, you know, well, we were doing things like it before. In other words, like we were at a conference, um, you would standard standard webcasting would be you have the general session and, and you're broadcasting it to a player page uh, so that, you know, people at home can kind of watch. Right. And it, that that's pretty basic. But when you're talking about taking um, an actual conference um, and bringing all of those, you know, we call them callers in. Right. So like we're on a Zoom call right now, um, you know, bringing each of these video sources all into our video switcher, basically um, like a broadcast studio. We're, we're creating TV, but for the corporate world, you know, we, we do these things called um, pips like picture in picture. That's where you, know, you put the different boxes across the screen. You're doing these lower thirds, like the name across the bottom, you know, uh, animation, video roles, things like that. You know, everything you can to basically make a broadcast TV show, but for a corporate setting, whether it's a sales conference, whether it's a, um, a town hall meeting. Um, so, we, yeah, we definitely had to. And these are a lot of these processes are things that we hadn't done before. So you're you're learning as you're going, you're trying to figure out how much you can actually charge for these things, um, building these studios. And a lot of it is companies would build the studios out of what gear they actually had on hand. You know, no one's going to have any money to go out and buy the maybe the right gear for the job. You're using the video switches you had, which may not be set up right for the right type of signals to do these types of things. So um, we were fortunate and able to kind of scale up. We have four what we call full on studios uh, where it's like a, 
to speak specifically like a Barco E2 or, you know, Barco S3, where you can do, you know, multiple layers of switching and stuff. And, you know, a typical show, if you will, has maybe four or five people running an audio person, a video person, a webcaster, all those things. Um, but, you know, we definitely, we, we had to go through layoffs, um, significant layoffs, um, significant furloughs. Fortunately, we were able to bring a bunch of techs back. Um, I've lost almost my whole team around me in terms of, I'm the director of audio. Uh, we had a director of um, lighting, video, two labor coordinators. Um, they're all gone. So for the last year, I've been doing the job of all four of them and myself. So I've been doing the job of five people for the last year to kind of kind of make ends meet uh, at the wow. company. Um, you know, I lost techs that worked under me. Uh, it's, um, it's been, it's been, it's been a struggle. I mean, we've, we, you know, through, we've been able to kind of sur- survive. That's just the name of the word, right? I mean, uh, name of the game is survival and we're surviving. Um, you know, if we're at this point of hopeful that by third quarter, what we call hybrid events would come back. So like maybe some in-person people, but a lot of the audience still at home, you still have those remote callers coming in. So we're still trying to navigate right now, like what that looks like from a technology standpoint, uh, so it's a it's a it's a big migration and shift for sure. That's crazy. Yeah, no, um, I think I think you're right. But I, I mean, I'm glad to hear that you guys are surviving. But yeah, it's a, it's unfortunate that that's all all we're doing. And so, and I and I was going to ask you, you know, sort of what you think the future holds. I mean, is, so you guys are thinking sort of Q3 maybe is what you're hoping for in terms. Or are you hearing any rumblings of anything sooner? I mean, let's be honest. We thought Q3 last year hybrid meetings were going to come back, right? Yeah. So, I. Since early mid last year, I I look at things at a day at time, right? I mean, yes, you have to plan for the future, but it's like I'm going to take what's in front of me today, and I'm going to tackle what's in front of me today. Um, who knows? I, you know, uh, obviously the the vaccine rollout, all these things are all big rabbit trails of who knows how well they're going to go. The COVID variants, so. I don't like to talk in terms of predicting because we were wrong a year ago. We're going to be wrong again. Um, and uh, so it's it's just, again, survive when we can, be ready for when it comes back. I, for a lot of people in this industry, I think the hardest thing is going to be um, being uh, at your game that you were a year ago <laughs> yeah. whenever things come back, right? People have, in our industry, our industry has been amazing in that we've spent all this time, all this downtime. The amount of resources that have come out from a training standpoint in the last year is insane. However, I'm telling you right now, any videos you watch six, eight months, I don't care, three months ago, you don't remember that stuff. So all this content's out there. You're going to have to uh, prepare yourself. I, you know, I asked a, a tour manager the other day, I'm like, so what kind of grace or leniency or is there going to be for somebody who's rusty or, or, or um, maybe makes a little mistake? And he's like, none. You had this time. You get your shit together and you be ready. Uh, that's, a, that's a scary thought. You know, I mean, yeah. um, I'm, that, I'm, that's what I'm curious about is like when we do come back, what, first off, who's still left around, right? But a lot of people had to trans and get, you know, um, had to get go get jobs at like Home Depot or like other places, they might not come back to this industry. Um, and so, uh, or the people around, um, I don't, or, or the new blood that wants to come into the industry, um, maybe they might not choose to because of how volatile it was. I mean, no one thought this industry could disappear like this. So it's it's tough. Yeah, it's yeah, really hard fair for... Enough, well, oh, go ahead, Mike. Oh, I was just going to say, it's, it's really hard for someone who's been in that position where you had work and you had solid work and then all of a sudden it disappears overnight and you have to reinvent yourself uh, just to get by it's hard to go back to that and say hey this is going to be my full-time gig again because who knows 10 years from now if it happens all over again so I, I relate to that because I've been out of work for a year and a half I haven't put 
a needle on vinyl in you know five months and it's gonna just that first gig when i come back is gonna be real sketch because it's it's gonna be like <laughs> yeah, all right let's yeah. see how this goes <laughs> well you know like like we were talking about earlier though i think that if any industry can do it it'll be this one um, you know, obviously it, it might be pushing snow again, but there will be, you know, new innovation, new advances, new technologies, things like that to chase whatever the, the next iteration of live sound sounds like. So I have, uh, I have the utmost faith in everybody, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it all shakes out. For sure. So as we're winding down here, I wonder if you could just sort of break down where people might track you down or, or check out the, the work you're doing, uh, the podcasts, all that good stuff. Sure. Uh, so, I mean, you can find um, specifically me on LinkedIn, um, Chris Leonard, right? Just search Chris Leonard. You'll probably be able to find me. Um, and then my other two projects. So how we got loud, how we got loud.com or on any of the socials, just at how we got loud. Um, and for signal to noise podcast, you can just go to signal to noise podcast.com or both of those. You can just, you know, if you're a podcast listener, you know, searching your podcast player and, you know, uh, Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, you'll, you'll, you'll find all of them. So. If you find one of those, you'll find me on all the other places. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. So cool. Well, thank you so much. And, and just a quick note to everybody who tuned in today. Uh, you know, we're really looking to build up our community in 2021. We're looking for a lot of interaction. So please feel free to email the show, contact the show through the website. It's eggscast.com. Uh, like Chris mentioned for his podcast and ours, you know, feel free to check out all the podcast apps where every place good pods are found. So uh, I guess with that, Chris, any parting shots, Mike, anything? Nope, think we're good. No, I appreciate your, appreciate your, uh, right, your time. Cool. Well, thanks so much, Chris. We really appreciate you doing this. It was, uh, it's been great. <laughs>